Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. from today's sponsor. Hey everybody, Mr. Dave here. I want to tell you all about... Oh, Mr. Dave! Mr. Dave! Hey Arnold, what can I do for you? I was just about to tell everybody all about the show. That's why I'm here. I thought of a wonderful way to do the commercial. Oh yeah? What's that? In song. It's educational. It's sensational. It's our puppet invitational. To join us each week for some fun. Sit back and relax. Grab some popcorn or some snacks. And get ready for the show. Sing along and get to know the sensation across the nation. It's a music-filled vacation. All your senses will be whirring and your brain cells will be stirring. It's the show you want to say. It's fun time with Mr. Day. That was a great idea, Arnold. You can find Fun Time with Mr. Dave on Facebook and Instagram at Dave the Entertainer. Welcome everybody to today's episode. Mr. Dave today we are going to be getting into the next bit of a uh, sort of sub-series that we're doing on DM skills. This is a series that started with our episode a couple of weeks ago where we talked about session zero and how to build your party and how to build your campaign uh, and how to how to get started and how to how to do that preliminary step. The next thing that we're going to get into is encounter building. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about combat. There are three pillars, really, of gameplay in any D&D game. Uh, and combat is the one that we're going to be talking about today because it is the one that most players uh, recognize right out of the gate. You know, role-playing and exploration are sometimes a little bit more esoteric, but combat encounters are the one that probably has the biggest pitfalls in terms of how do you build them properly for the people that you have at the table. Uh, but it's also the one that your players are going to recognize most commonly. You know, the player's book and the DM's book both spend a lot of time talking about weapons and combat and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and start our uh, encounter building episode with combat. So, Lee Wanika, why don't you go ahead and get started? Yeah, so like Josh said, we're going to be very focused on combat encounters today. Not because as storytellers, we think every game is about combat, but the reality is every drama has its climax. Every group of scenes needs to have some type of physical release, generally speaking. And combat satisfies that urge and that situation when we're talking about D&D. For a lot of people, 
rolling clacky clacky math rocks is exactly i always have my math rocks here is exactly what they come to the table for the rp and all those things are great and i know i am not alone when i speak as a storyteller who draws people in with a lot of those combats and making them very cool to get the drama, to get the role play, to get the memorable story so that the action punctuates the role play. So what we want to do is help storytellers create combat encounters that do just that. Exactly. It's not going to be a surprise to anybody who has listened to any of our episodes that we are story first game masters the games that we run are based on the narrative of the of the story that we want to go ahead and tell and building combat encounters that support that can be a little tricky and so the first thing that really you need to think about when you are building a story first combat encounter is what's the reason for the encounter who is it that your party is going to be encountering and what's the reason that that encounter is going to become combat and that's not necessarily the same if you are throwing a handful of goblins at them versus uh, a minion of your big bad evil guy that is that is going to be coming at kind of the end game of your story. And so that's the first thing that you need to think about when you're putting this together is what's the reason for the encounter? Why is this combat going to happen in the first place? Along those lines, a bit of a disclaimer. Many DMs, many storytellers will operate using random roll tables or random encounters. I don't use them often or in the way they're generally prescribed but I do use them. And I think it's important to note that what we're talking about here is something beyond the random encounter. The random encounter is players are not moving. The plot is stalled. We've got to get them out of the box, the room, the field, the road they're on to move to the next story beat. And so you put an encounter to say standing still is not a good idea for your party. That's a different thing than what we're talking about here. Those are fairly simple. They're very pedestrian, but they are an important yeah. element, and we'll get to those in future yeah. episodes. What we're talking about is I have an adventure that I'm homebrewing. I'm putting together a campaign, and I need to build an encounter for to, for next week's yep. session. First of all, plan things in advance as much as you can. Uh, I'm not saying it has to be six years in advance, but they do have to be somewhat yep. in advance. It's hard to do what we're talking about today in the middle. You can't do it at the table. You might be able to do it the night before, but it may not be your best work if you do it that way. So Josh was talking about the reason for the encounter. Some of the things we think about when we're talking about the reasons for encounters is, what about the pacing? What's the tempo of this? Is this a slow building fight? Like, was there this great RP session and then it turns into a fight? Is it going to be the good guys are attacking the wall is it they're on the wall and the bad guys are coming so they've known it's been coming what's that speed what kind of action sequence are you going for there are many kinds of fights it can be a quick cut action scene like any number of medieval mm -hmm. fantasy movies kingdom of heaven comes to mind gladiator comes mm -hmm. to mind those are nice quick cut scenes or it can be more slow motion i'm thinking along the lines of crouching tiger hidden dragon or jetly's hero you know the tempo and the pacing 
will largely determine the types of elements you need to put into your encounter. When your players are moving from point A to point B, one of the great ways to establish that the area of the world that they're in is dangerous is by putting, maybe not necessarily random encounters, but sort of planned random encounters within that within that scope. Like if they know that they've got to move from one side of the forest to the other side of the forest and that forest is a dangerous place, then they should be encountering either uh, several small pockets of enemies, you know, maybe two or three goblins here, two or three goblins there, a hobgoblin there, that kind of thing. Those kind of encounters are there to establish that where where the players are is a dangerous place. They can serve to go ahead and create this tension. It kind of gets into the resource management bit of it, right? It's like if the players feel that they are potentially under threat at any given moment, then their ability to rest comes in. Their ability, you know, what spells do they use? If they if they blow all their spells on that first encounter and then your wizard is stuck trying to use his dagger for three encounters, at some point that character, that player is going to need to be like, I, I, you know what, I, we need to figure out some way to rest. We either need to go ahead and blast through this place or we need to find some place where we can go and get a rest in because uh, that wizard is definitely going to be threatened at that point in time. And so that's, that is one of those tempo things that you can keep that slow burn for a period, for a long period of time. It doesn't have to be one big encounter that is potentially dangerous right there. It can be a series of encounters that just kind of keep the water at a low boil for a prolonged period of time. You can apply heat and cook a meal over time or on high, but it is much, much more tender if it's done a little bit lower heat for a lot longer period of time. Just a little something that I picked up from the chef feet. It's <laughs> definitely a way to, way to look at it. There are also some great elements that you can use to foreshadow that type of encounter, that, that trip through the forest that Josh mentioned, leaving remnants of a battle, then leaving maybe elements of a body. Don't leave the bodies, but you can say, definitely someone was killed. I'm not talking an animal, a person was killed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you walk in, you walk on a campsite that has one or two tents set up, a fire that has been lit within the last 12 hours, some gear and chaos, you know, blood and drag marks, you know, that sort of thing. Like, that's the kind of thing that there is no combat that is actually threatening your players and it is absolutely telling them that they've got something to fear in these woods. And by the way, when you do lead people into that situation, when you begin these types of encounters that we're discussing, as storytellers, utilize this technique. Give them the lead in, but don't give them too much. Let them ask you what they perceive. And if you do it right, even if you have newer players or players who are new to you, they may miss it the first couple encounters. But if you're consistent about your delivery of information, you're going to get to the point where it's like after you describe what they see, the player playing the ranger is going to say, what do I smell? Yep. Or yep. does this match the weather of the last campsite we saw destroyed? They're going to start asking you those questions. They're going to start hanging on your words. They're going to start asking you questions based on their five senses. Six, if there's a character who has it. They're going to ask you those things. As a, as a storyteller, you need to be prepared to give those information, that information, because that is going to give you the base yeah. to this encounter that you're building. And trust me, we're talking about building an encounter. 
So the, the foundation yep. of that building is setting the scene, knowing the reason, setting the scene, and setting the stakes. we got to talk about plot advancement. Yep. The stakes of a battle are largely important to the battle. Early on, it could be a real quick adventure. People are returning home. They're attacked by enemies, and they were just trying to get home, but they're meeting up for the first time. It's a light, quick encounter. It's at relatively low levels. By the way, I just gave you the opening plot to Dragons of, uh, of Autumn Twilight. <laughs> the Dragonlance novel, for those who don't know. There's a way to do that that is very tropish but fun. Oh, yeah. And in every campaign, especially if you're starting your campaigns at level one or level three, you can do something like that to lead them in. You don't start with a big bag necessarily right at the first uh, out the gates. But it's a good way to get the story going. It may or may not connect to your larger plot. It could be just something to get the blood flowing at the players and bring them in and media res, so to speak. My players haven't encountered one yet, and yet is the operative word. So those of you that are listening, uh, just understand that this is coming. But one of my favorite things to do is make a session feel, or even like a like a subplot, like a two or three session subplot, make it feel like it's escalating up, and that it's always an upward tilt, and that you know the 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 peak of the mission is the big battle that they have at the end, um, and then they just get to go ahead and and go home in glory, and everything is fantastic. And man, you know if they hurry out of that encounter and don't think, you know what, we just, we're down to, to like 20 hit points between the six of us. Maybe we should slow down and like, you know, nurse our wounds a little bit. There is nothing that I like better than having them walk home and run into like a band of bandits or thieves, some bad guy that is watching this group of weary, bedraggled, tired, hurt adventurers, because adventurers always have loot, because they've always got money, and they've always got magic stuff. So if I'm a if I'm a thief, if I if I if, if I'm a highwayman, that's who I'm going after because you know chances are yeah they may have a wizard among them, but that wizard's not going to have many hit points and it's certainly not going to have very many spells left. So I, if I'm a highwayman, that's who I'm targeting. Uh, man, I love doing that. I love doing that so much. Just when players think it's done, realize that nope, it's not done. You've got to do one more thing that to any other moment would be totally inconsequential, but at this moment in time, at this exact instant that encounter is really, really inconvenient. Um, and that is one of the things that we, you know, we talked about tempo and kind of how to, how to spread that, uh, encounter or that series of encounters to go ahead and support your narrative. The timing of when you give them those encounters is absolutely critical. Yeah. To add to that, to layer on, because we're going to get to layering onto this foundation and this this encounter we're building. Uh, I also want to add that for those who are not homebrew people, you can do this too, right? If you use modules or you adapt modules in some way, consider this, any module that has the bandit attack while the party's on their way out to the mission, turn that on its head, take that encounter out, let them go into the actual meat and potatoes of that module fresh. But now on the way back now have the bandits attack. Exactly what Josh is talking about. And if you're using a module, use the module exactly as written, except the bandit encounter or that first encounter that's not linked necessarily to the main plot. Take it out of that spot and put it at the back end. So they save the day. They're the heroes. They're getting back to town. Now they get attacked. If they get beat, let's say you have a TPK because they were weak. As a DM, this is a fiat thing. Party's not dead. They wake up unconscious. Done. Everybody's survived the attack. They were just unconscious. 
all their loot, all their good stuff gone. Now that you've got a campaign, because now they have to go after some random group of bad guys who have fenced their stuff. Even if they catch the bad guys, they caught them after their stuff got fenced. So yep. now to get their gear, oh. they're traveling your campaign world to get their own stuff back. That's that, a that magic scepter that they got set, that magic scepter that they had to go after just got stolen and is now showing up in some pawn shop in Waterdeep somewhere and they got to go get it. And for those of us for those of you out there who are inexperienced dungeon masters who don't who don't feel confident enough to homebrew, congratulations. Doing something like that is the easiest way making a small change like that because there's nothing big you've still got the rules they're still in front of you you're just picking up that piece of it putting it someplace else in the adventure make chapter one chapter nine problem solved really yep absolutely really yeah and and that really that gets to the biggest piece of what a combat encounter should be doing to your story and it is adding a level of fear of terror of anticipation tension to your players it's adding tension it is adding a mortal fear because let's be honest at any and we're going to get into how to go ahead and mechanically build these in a little bit here but that's really what a combat encounter is supposed to do for your game session it is supposed to make your players fear that their character will die. Like that's what a combat encounter, that is the, that's the primary purpose of a combat encounter is to give that mortal terror to your character. Uh, one of my favorite characters that I'm playing right now is a swashbuckler. He does not fear death. Well, he does now, but that's for a separate issue. So he goes into every encounter, like just totally like raging and he's going to go ahead and, and, you know, but now as the game has moved on and he's, he's died once and had to be brought back, now he's he's a little less anxious to jump in and 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 to do the thing and now he's got he's got somebody to fight for so now he's a little he's got a little bit of of of, of temerity he's a little bit more nervous and so me as a player like I've got that excitement now like man you know my swashbuckler used to be just like guns blazing he just run in there and do the thing and now it's like well hold on wait a minute I might die and I might die for real die this time not not like be able to be brought back die what is my you know how is this actually gonna is gonna work and so uh that's those are the kind of emotions those are the kind of feelings that you can make your players experience when you throw a combat encounter at them that they're not expecting absolutely along those lines you can beat and amp up and work against type and against uh, anticipated goals. The most perfect example I know about this in film, at least, is the movie Die Hard. For mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. At, at this point, Die Hard is, is known. It's a trope. Everybody does it now. But what any of our younger audience members may not realize is when Die Hard came out, it was a one of a kind. Before Die Hard, when your action hero got into a situation, they pretty much left the film as they entered it, unhurt. There might be one scene in the climax fight where the bad guy lands a blow and the hero's got a little bit of blood coming out of his nose or there's a little bit of blood on his teeth where he took one good shot, but he was untouched. When you were watching Die Hard that very first time, back when it came out, 89 or 88, whenever it was, may have been 90, I'm not sure exactly. I think it was 88. Ugh. Whenever that came out. I don't want to look out. that up. That's scary. But 
when the glass got shot out and he was barefoot and he had to run across the floor to escape getting shot and he was bleeding and he was trying to figure out what was going on, pulling glass out of his feet. I hope I'm not being too spoiled <laughs> with a nearly 30-year-old movie. Oh, uh, yeah. But when he did that, one of the first times something like that was done on film in an, a, a popular, well-marketed action movie. I'm not saying it hadn't been done before, but it certainly hadn't been done on the big screen for everybody to see in a popular, well-known movie. I actually considered the fact that the good guy might not win because I had never seen that before. And I'd seen a lot of movies. It was very interesting to see that done. It is now almost a trope that the good guy gets well, good and bloodied and can still fight back so much so that the last Die Hard movie was a bit of a joke because they tried to do that. And I'm like, yeah, of course, McLean isn't is going to get bloodied up and come back and fight. We're not a hugging family, whatever. It wasn't cool anymore because it was so well done in a very similar manner. Many tabletop games don't do that. So here's a shot for the storytellers out there. You can create the situations where that will happen in your game, where the player's getting good and well-bloodied early, or certainly getting good and well-bloodied at the back end, but early is something that they've never experienced before. They'll start approaching encounters differently. They will approach some RP encounters with less confidence because they don't want what they think is an RP encounter to turn into a combat encounter. They don't want that surprise if they're not ready, but you got to bloody your nose before they're ready for that. I, I actually, so I, I am writing an adventure uh, right now and there is a point early in, in one of the scenes that the players can engage with where they meet the big bad guy and intentionally combat will ensue like the big bad guy will force that combat he will bring the combat to them he will be driving that train he at that point in time has virtually unlimited resources he will just keep throwing minions at them and then he the big bad guy will decide to stop it and begin to negotiate because he has he has expressed his power he has expressed how strong he is he has expressed his desires now he has an offer he is he will let the player characters go if they do what he wants. It is absolutely intentional that and it, 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 this is it is it is written into the script. Yeah, from the concept. Once you're talking, once you've got your tempo and pacing selected, we're not prescribing one over the other. The fact is, your game, your campaign, your table will dictate what you're looking for based on the type of game you're running. See our session zero episode for how to at least get an idea there. We'll also do a campaign building uh, episode as well in the near future, so we can talk some more in detail about that, uh, styles of campaigns, that type of thing. But once you have that, all that encounter concept stuff and the feel of that encounter selected, now comes the meat and potatoes. What kinds of enemies do you want? What kinds of monsters or NPCs are mm. going to be involved in this combat? Is it minion battles are we talking bunches of hordes of goblins a uh, uh, warren of kobolds are we talking a platoon of hobgoblins is it a squad of drow is it a minion battle and if so is their boss present uh is it a is it a mini boss battle you know selecting that type of thing is important or is it a monster is it 
natural born creatures who are animals of instinct? Are they magical creatures who have a fervor and a thirst for blood in the player's souls that, that cannot be stopped? <laughs> uh, those are the types of things that you get to decide when you're building your encounter. You select all those based on your campaign's needs and wants. But once you make those choices, there's some things that you have to do within that framework. And that is decide what's going to go in the combat. And a lot of it has to do with the level of your party at the time. And then you have to kind of see what's going to match and be a challenge for them. Along those lines, you come to what's known as challenge rating or CR. Every stat block has them. Every DM and storyteller has seen them. Every player character player PC who's played the game knows about them, but they are confusing as heck to wrap your head around. Oh, they're so confusing. They really are because, you know, you've got, honestly, CR is not, it is, it is a tool that I sort of look at when I'm trying to decide how many minions or how many bad guys I can necessarily put into an encounter. You know, a CR rating becomes much more useful when you are, uh, when you're kind of doing those those unimportant kind of, uh, not random encounters necessarily, but those kind of traveling encounters, right? Where it's like, okay, I know that my, my party is made up of six level three characters, and so, you know, if I want this to be a quick and small encounter, then I probably only want about three CR points worth of bad guys. You know, basically, you know, enough bad guys for one for one hero ranking in in a in a uh, comparison between CR and level. That's going to be a small encounter, something that should only take them a round or two to go ahead and 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 dispatch if everything goes right and everything like that. Versus, you know, a big bad guy where that big bad guy probably is going to be uh, a CR rating more like half of the total levels of the party, right? So if I've got, again, if I've got those six level three characters, the CR rating for the big bad guy, if you really want it to be a challenge that they may that they may or may not survive, you want a CR eight or a CR nine in there uh, because that's that's going to be a battle that goes down to the last possible second, the last possible round. You know where where your wizard is knocked unconscious and your cleric is out of spells, and basically you've got you know you've got your archer that can take one more shot to go ahead and take it out and shoots the big bad guy through the eye as he falls into a cloud of dust, you know? But again, this is purely a, a metric that I have gained from doing this for 20-something years. I know that because I have played with CR enough to go ahead and know how strong I can make an encounter. There is no rule about how much CR a particular party can fight. If you've got a party of six third-level barbarians, you can throw more CR at them than a party of six third-level bards. That's just the that's just the nature of the beast. This is the part of the podcast where I um, would usually disagree with you <laughs> and let you know how wrong you are. And interestingly enough, unlike every other time I start a statement like that, I'm actually going oh, to yes. disagree with you. I think that the example you gave, the bards are stronger than the barbarians. That's just me. As long as they have all it depends their Depends on the bad guy. It does depend on the bad guy. That is a very true statement. But uh, I will diverge. I think bards are exceptionally powerful. In 5e, that is not historically always the case. But in 5e, I think bards bards are exceptionally powerful uh, overall. That said, uh, you're right. 
the rules about CR are not rules at all. They're guidelines. And they're very loose. I think it's probably, of all the things discussed, and it is discussed in a couple different locations, I believe Xanathar's and the DMG and probably a couple other places, I know there are probably hundreds of YouTube videos about CR uh, as well. And the universal statement is CR isn't accurate. You kind of have to get a feel for it. Some of the things that Josh and I use in the calculation of how to go with CR is you have to calculate your table. Yep. The experience of your players, and I'm not talking experience level or experience points. I'm talking how long the player has been playing and how well that player knows the character or the character class they're yep. playing can raise or lower the CR that you need to have. And so along those lines, if you don't have that built-in knowledge, if you don't have that built-in experience, there are tools that can help you. And even if you're an experienced storyteller, there are tools that can help you. There's any number of tools online, look them up, way too many to mention, where they'll say, put in the C the, the levels of your parties or and it'll pop out uh, a CR level that is good as a yep. one-off or good if there's two of them or good if there's three of them. So you can tell that and tell that there is what I feel the absolute best quote unquote encounter builder for determining your CR level is actually right on D and D beyond. And again, we're not being sponsored by these guys. Hashtag call your boys TTJ, <laughs> but that is exceptionally good. And I didn't believe it would work. I actually built it and used it in a game specifically to test whether it worked. Interestingly enough, I did this in a one shot for a convention, a virtual convention to see how it would work. I built the encounter. It told me it would be a deadly encounter. I was like, there's no way this is a deadly encounter. This is at best hard, mm -hmm. right? There's no way this is a deadly encounter. What I put into this thing. And in the opening round, just because of where initiative landed, one of my players was dead and making saving throws. Huh. Four others were on the ground and making saving throws, or three others were making saving throws, and this was out of six uh, players. Uh, I had half the party in the opening encounter. Those players who were out didn't even get to uh, roll, and they were out. And I was like, oops. And, and, and that's when I realized that that tool is more spot on than you would know. By the way, it's very clear. There's easy there's hard, and then there's yep. deadly. And when you are looking at a deadly encounter, you're looking at all it takes is a single dice roll and A or multiple PCs could be out of yep. the fight. Yep. Full yeah. stop. And I think more so than any other tool, that is probably most accurate on D&D Beyond. That's my favorite one. I use it fairly frequently, but not for everything. But it has taught me one thing. I build an encounter, even if I don't use a tool, I then enter it into the tool just to get a gauge. If I build something like I was looking for hard, I put it in there and it shows me deadly, I realize I have to ratchet it back in some yep. kind of way. If I was building something I wanted to be deadly and I only came up hard, I realize I have to ratchet it up some kind of way. Yep. But narratively speaking, I also have a reserve of enemies or creatures or situations that can either go away or enter if in gameplay it's not working the way I had intended. Yep. If I wanted a hard encounter and it was too easy, I have something in the works or in the waiting, waiting in the wings 
to make yep. it that. Similarly, if it was too hard, I there's an out yep. that I can provide to bring it back to where I wanted it to be so I can provide the type of tempo, pacing, plot advancement that I was looking for, even if my numbers, my guesses, and my estimates didn't quite work out in relation to Yeah, and we're going to... Okay, I'm going to touch on the third rail a little bit here and say that when you're dealing with combat encounters as the storyteller, if you have made the decision that your story is the driving factor for everything that happens at the table, fudge your dice rolls. You fudge your dice rolls. You fudge your dice rolls. Sometimes... Sometimes I know, I know. Lee is cringing. He's he's oh, he jumped <laughs> oh, yeah, right in. Yeah, I d- didn't even plug his nose, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Josh yeah. jumped right in the deep uh, end, frigid yeah. cold in the Absolutely. middle of the coldest winter we've yeah. seen in Some, recent. You know, if the party is having too hard a time with your combat encounter and and you want to get out of it, maybe one of the minions you know stubbed his toe on a rock getting out of bed that morning and he is down a couple of hit points. Or vice versa, if the combat is too easy and you wanna you wanna milk it a little bit more, uh, maybe they're making too much noise and more minions come. I mean, like the the the. The great example that I've got, um, I talked about the game that I was running where we were running through the Tomb of Annihilation module, right? And if you know Tomb of Annihilation, once you are uh, in sort of the final city and you uh, you go into the temple of the Yanti and you are about to go ahead and fight Raznasi, um, there is a way that you can sneak into his throne room through basically the sewers that run underneath. But to do that, you have to fight his prized pet, Hydra. Now, Hydra are no joke, right? They are... uh, They're like a a CR4 or a CR5 creature. Like, they're they're no joke. And we were five or six level eight characters, right? Uh, We got, like, there was a a druid and a swashbuckler and a tank, and um, I was playing a wizard, and and, uh, we had a cleric. You know, so we were pretty balanced party and everything like that, right? That CR5 Hydra was defeated in a round and a half. If you think about that in actual combat terms, we walked up on that Hydra, it popped out of the water, and we killed it in nine seconds. So something needed to happen there to make that encounter more dangerous. And it didn't happen. I mean, if you want to talk about just how jacked up CR is, think about, let, let me go ahead and pose this question for you, right? Which is the more powerful creature, right? An orc or a swarm of rot grubs? Rot grubs, every no, time. neither. They're the same CR. And that's the failure of yeah. the CR system. Yep. That's where it breaks and that's down. That's why I don't use it. It is, <laughs> yeah, it is very numeric. Yep. What it doesn't take into account are the two things that you need to take into account. Factor one that it does not take into account is action economy. It's something that came up in our recent conversation with Danilo from Thinking Critically. But we talked about action economy being the alpha and the omega. Thank you, Danilo, for that phrase. I think the Bible said it first, but that's okay. Well, the Bible said it first, but (laughs) in relation to D&D, that's Danilo. (laughs) And all props to my friend across the pond who's in England definitively. I know he's not in Australia. Never going to live that down. I, I won't. 
I won't. That's on Twitter. That's out there for forever. No, it was in his episode. Yeah, and in his episode. Thank you for keeping that because I need to be humbled every so often, like once an episode. But to my point is action economy is so critical and so important to the game that that's the thing that CR doesn't take get, take into effect. It is talking about the number of character level, not the number of characters. If you have an, a monster with 100 hit points, it still has, unless it has multi-attack, one action or one attack to five. Or in my case, I run very large groups, six or eight. What I have determined is if my battle was originally going to be, I want them to do a monster encounter, there's going to be one monster. I will make sure there are at least one minion for each player character and the boss monster. That makes, that narrows the field yep. and accurately, at least for me, depicts what that boss monster should be. Interestingly enough, I take a, a, a homebrew tip from other DMs who've been out there. I don't know who did it first, but I know where I first uh, heard it was a combination of the Dungeon Coach on YouTube and the Dungeon Cast, who are frequently talking about 4th Edition, the minion rules of 4th Edition. They have an interesting mechanic in 4th Edition where there's this thing called a minion. Whatever it is, if a PC hits it successfully, it dies. You're, you, as, a, as a storyteller, you don't have to worry about the hit points. I have adapted that rule to be something, something slightly different, and it's based on the party level or the tier of the party. So in Tier 1... All my minions are one hit and die. My party's in tier two. All my minions are two hits and die. And I expect when I get to tier three, three hits, and tier four, four hits. That's yep. that's how I, I like do that. it. And so if I want that solo encounter, they're fighting the great big bad wolf. There's lots of regular wolves that are basically minion wolves. From an action economy standpoint, it still gets to do its thing. I wanted a hard encounter. It can still work some hurt. All the other wolves can kind of do their thing. They can take advantage of the pack tactics, but they're pretty much going to go away within one or two rounds. And I think that that works very well, smoothing out the CR failings uh, when it comes to action economy. So I'm going to, I'm going to toss out a suggestion for you here. And this, like, I honestly did not know that he was going to talk about this. And so this is the first time I'm hearing about this. I love that minion rule. I'm going to toss out uh, something for you to think about though, rather than making your tier four minions be four hits and dead, maybe mi double up the number of minions and keep them as two hits and dead. And the reason why I say that is because think about uh, if you're fighting, so tier four, you're talking level 15 and beyond, your big bad evil guy is also going to be equivalent to level 15, yeah. right? Do you really want your big bad guy to get four rounds of pot shots on your heroes before they have even moved through the wave of minions that you send at them. That's a fair point. I think that that's going to be. I think that that's that's the that's the one concern that I would have with that. Otherwise, I think that um, that the minion system is fabulous. I'm I'm writing uh, a, a campaign right now that has a, a built-in. I mean, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but it basically has a built-in minion encounter that I have. I have a pool of minions that will last for the entire camp uh, the entire session that I'm writing. I know that throughout the session I can pull 15 or 20 minions. And so if I want this combat to go on a little bit longer, maybe I pull three or four yeah. of them. 
if I want the next encounter to go a little bit longer, maybe I pull three or four more of them. If I want the end encounter to go a little bit longer, maybe I pull the rest of them, you know, that kind of thing. But it's it, but that's kind of the way that I'm managing it. I've got a pool of minions that I'm, I'm going to be able to go ahead and throw in there throughout the thing. I also have minions on the heroes side also. So there are built-in points where given a combat encounter, if it's not going the way that I need it to go for the story, maybe the city watch catches word of what's going on and now four good guy minions are coming in or or whatever, right? So there's a pool of minions kind of on both sides that I'm going to be using to balance these combat encounters because I, I did not go with combat encounter, uh, combat rating when I built this encounter at all. What I did was I went purely based on action economy. I said, here's my big bad guy. This big bad guy has 100 points. Given the party that I've got in any given round, they're going to be averaging... 15 to 20 hit points of damage per turn. And that's obviously going to be mitigated a little bit, like if the cleric needs to heal versus doing an offensive thing and that kind of thing, right? So there's there's mitigation in there. But I so then I do the math and say, well, if they can do 20 points of damage a turn and the bad guy's got 100, 100 point hit points, that means five rounds to take out the big bad guy if everything goes as expected. Then I got to flip it the other way around and say, well, okay, how much damage is that big bad guy going to do in the five rounds it takes to knock him out? And then start thinking about, well, okay, if he, you know, given what he's got and and his prowess and everything like that, he can do 15 points of damage at a shot. Okay, so that means that my level three cleric might die or my, you know, yeah. or, or whatever, you know, my, my, my dragonborn paladin might not, but you know, who knows, who knows what's going to happen here? Who knows kind of what, uh, and that, that gets into targeting and everything like that too. But that's sort of the way that I did it was I'm looking like how many rounds do I think my players can survive? How many rounds do I want that combat to go on? And then how do I structure my bad guy into that scenario. And I use it as very much a calculation of what is the amount of damage that's going to be done and what's the amount of damage that the party can soak as a unit. I like your suggestion, and that's something I'll take under advisement. So because my player characters in both the campaigns I've run ongoing are level 9 and 10, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do at 15. I haven't got there yet. So, uh, and I'm not even into uh, tier 3 yet. So... I think you might be right. Maybe uh, at tier three, it's not double, but it's half again the number of minions in in that scenario. Or maybe two two one hit minions instead yeah. of you know yeah. that kind of thing, because then because then they have to worry about the action economy. Because now they have to worry about yes, it's the same number of hits to defeat the minions that are in front between them and the big bad guy. But now they have to worry about getting attacked twice. Yeah. And so that's how it, that's how tier three yeah. it ramps up. And then so then maybe in, for tier four, it's two two-hit minions, you know, that yeah, kind of so, thing. so uh, I think that's something I'll definitely take into account. I am not going to jump in the deep water with Josh and say fudge rolls because I, with almost 99.8% assurity, do not fudge rolls. You're lying. I said, Everyone ni- I rolls. said 99.8. <laughs> I roll a lot of dice. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I do, because I use the minion rule, I do take advantage of certain things. I also utilize a very important factor that we're going to get that I didn't mention earlier in concept. It doesn't fit in our breakdown very well, but there's a very important concept. I don't believe most enemies will fight to the death. 
Yeah, no, that's very fair, especially your low CR creatures. Like, your goblins, uh, if, if, if you come in and you throw a fireball down and you incinerate two of the five goblins that you're facing right now, those other three goblins are running away. Like, there's no doubt about that. No doubt. No doubt. There's an ongoing gag in my uh, main game that I run on Saturdays that my bad guys always run away and you can't catch them. And it's very difficult to catch somebody to get info out of them. You almost <laughs> have to kill them or incapacitate them in order to later be able to question them. And there's a reason for that, because in reality, most people don't stay to, to the death. Uh, uh, if you're in a bar and somebody doesn't like you because you spilled the drink, you might box. Generally speaking, at least in civilized or somewhat civilized society, it's not <laughs> to the death. And in fact, that's regarded quite poorly. So in the games I run, that's the way civilized society works. Now, if you're at war with somebody and it's on the battlefield, that's a different story. So I do adapt this for the situation and I recommend that storytellers do. We've talked a lot about the, the reasons for encounters, the way we select enemies for the encounter. We've actually talked about the f general flow of uh, the combat encounter as far as when bad guys retreat, should they retreat, do they stay in for the fight? After all of that, and their tact, which is basically tactics, making sure that our enemies follow their tactics. Just mentioned goblins run. Goblins also are smart. They are people. They will do things like traps and tricks. Cobalt, same thing. They just don't run out and stab until they get stabbed. They will create situations that make it difficult for their enemies to succeed. That's how they've proliferated in most game worlds. So make sure you're utilizing the tactics that are written into the flavor text of your enemy's stat blocks, because often they're not in the stat blocks. Sometimes they are. You'll have characters with pack tactics, for instance. But if they have that, make sure you play that. And if they don't have it, re yeah, make sure you read the flavor text. If you talk about hobgoblins being smart and tactical, even if there's not something in the stat block that says that, play them that way make your enemies memorable make their tactics excellent make them work well but be consistent and that will help your players really live and love your adventures that said the next thing and something that could have come first could have come later but i really want to dig into this i know josh wants to dig into this so i'm going to give josh the lead on environments when you're building encounters, you've got the reason, you've got the enemies, you've got the flow and the tactics. What's left to do to make this thing cool? What's going to make this sing? Man, and when you start talking about environment, really when you are laying out where that combat is going to happen, you're talking about what are the various elements outside of the opponent that you're bringing into the thing. Are you having this encounter in a tight tunneled mine where there's not a lot of, uh, uh, there's not a lot of uh, ability to move around and to position yourself? Or are you having it in a forest glade? Or are you having it in an area like a tight copse of trees? You know, there's all sorts of different aspects of environment that you can bring directly to that encounter that impact it in a very direct way. But honestly, the thing that I wanted to go ahead and talk about with environment is something which I don't remember from any of the earlier editions, um, at least by name. 
but they are some of the additional environmental actions that your biggest bad guys get. Your legendary actions and your lair actions. And these are basically actions that when you are attacking a bad guy in an area where they can prepare the environment to be suited to what they're going to do, the environment almost becomes another bad guy that you need to face within within the scope of that combat. You know, lair actions and legendary actions are those extra and generally powerful, powerful actions that happen just by the nature of of attacking the person where you, where, where you are. You know, if you are going after the lich in their wizard's tower, then they have the ability to have set up certain fire traps or to command certain aspects of that environment to petrify you or to scare you or to give you disadvantage on checks and all those sorts of things. Legendary actions in particular are one of those things that as a storyteller, playing against a storyteller who uses legendary actions well, we, we talked earlier about how the feel of an encounter should uh, should frighten your players. It should give them that, that feeling of excitement, that anxiety legendary actions when you are facing a, pa a creature that's got legendary and lair actions it should strike fear into the heart of your players because you never you don't actually know what's going to happen and you're and now you have to face this this unknown unbeatable enemy because the bad guy that you're facing is so powerful that their essence kind of exudes into the environment around them. You know, you don't fight a hag in the swamp where the hag lives. You draw the hag out of the swamp and you kill them in the sunlight. <laughs> yeah. So you're absolutely right. I think legendary actions are incredible. They are mechanically to give a definition to those who are not familiar. They are specific things that creatures have it's part of their stat block and basically it will be uh sometimes it's a resistance sometimes it's an autonomic response it varies creature by creature but it will be identified as such and generally speaking they can do it x number of times per round or x number of times in an encounter it will be described in the stat famously dragons tend to have three when they're talking about ancient dragons and it it will say something like you can use one legendary action per round at any time, no reaction, no action, no bonus action necessary. However, you cannot use the same action twice in a row or something like that. And I think that's brilliant. The purpose of these by design, layer actions as well. By the way, ancient dragons tend to have layer actions and legendary actions. The purpose of these is to balance action economy. It is so that the creature is able to do damage a number of times in proximity to the number of creatures it faces. So generally, you're fighting an ancient dragon, you're talking a group, a party that's probably in the 10 to 15 range, maybe more, which means your fighters are going to have three attacks. They're going to have bonus actions. Everybody's going to have a number of attacks or actions, but generally more than three. So the, yep. the, the dragon in this example has multi-attack. So it's going to get two actions out there. It has its tail swipe, which is likely a legendary action. It has its wing buffet, 
also a legendary action, and it has some other legendary action, right? So it's got all of these things. So that's three attacks plus its multi-attack, which is two attacks. So it's got five attacks per round versus your average party of four to five. It's much more balanced. That's the point. That's how they balance the action economy. So dragons, if run properly, you need less minions because they have these extra actions. Yep. Be aware of that. The, if, the biggest example that I've that I've got is the Kraken, right? Anytime you face a Kraken, its attacks with its tentacles are legendary actions. And so you have to worry about the jaw of the Kraken and everything like that and whatever whatever minions it may have summoned. But it also gets up to three basically bonus attacks with its tentacles and it can use them to either attack you or to grab you and throw you into the water and that it gets three of those around and that only costs one it has other more powerful legendary actions but those are the ones that if you're fighting a kraken that you really need to worry about because you know you're dealing with something that's got eight arms it's got three attacks and it's got these three legendary actions per turn you could potentially have six tentacles coming at you at any given time uh when you're fighting the krakens then you get onto layer actions which are my personal favorites and those are the ones where it's not the creature per se it's the actual environment so if you're fighting a red dragon in its volcano there are literally pools of lava that jump out at random points i.e points of the dragon notices it has enemies and take out player characters, um, or at least attack them. It has a uh, earthquake-type environment, which will knock all player characters prone. I believe that's the red dragon. might be another type of dragon, but there are those types of effects that dragons have with their environment. And then there's uh, uh, one other set of things, like if you're talking about, um, there's usually something that takes place outside their lair or for a a distance around their layer, at least with dragons. And it does vary creature by creature, type by type, but those layer actions are very important. With layer actions and dragons, they almost always take place on initiative 20. And so uh, uh, so it's like, no matter where it is, it's hurting somebody or attempting to hurt somebody very early in any combat round. It just happens. Yeah. So with all of those things that are by stat, that are built into the actual nuts and bolts, the black and white on paper, part of the game, there's something that I do in many of my encounters uh, that I think equal that. So if I'm having a minion battle or a mini boss battle, I have environmental actions. So I will do things that are not enemy driven, but that impact and sometimes often impact everybody. However, if they're consistent events, I generally put in bad guys that don't have to worry about it. So for instance, if I have uh, the party against uh, uh, in a situation where they're in a place that moves a lot for some reason, they're on shipboard or whatever, I will have the party go against a type of bad guy that isn't impacted by that. They're used to the shipboard movement. So my party of landlubbers on a boat, they are fighting against creatures that have their sea legs. So the party every round is moving through difficult terrain or having to, uh, on a specific initiative role uh, or number, uh, make a dex check to see if they maintain their footing, but the bad guy might not be, or the bad guy has advantage to their role. And those types of things. I love environmental actions like that. Lightning strikes, torrential rain, uh, a fire in a room, and I'll have it advance so certain areas get cut off each round or certain things get harder and harder to deal with as we go. 
those types of environmental actions, they do go a long way into making your encounter, one, more memorable, but two, an interesting challenge. The only thing is, if you're doing things like that, you have to take that into account account when you're talking about what types of creatures, what CRs I'm looking for. I think that one other thing to think about when you are building a creature that has legendary or lair uh, options or these environmental options that you're talking about, it's something, it's it's kind of the unwritten rule about building encounters. Um, and it was something that I saw, uh, was reading an article earlier today about how to build heist encounters. And it used uh, Ocean's Eleven as a model um, to go ahead and, and walk through how to build a heist type session uh, for your players in a tabletop role-playing sense. Um, and one of the things that they mentioned in there is that you've got to be careful about dancing the line between things that go wrong during the heist encounter because uh, the players didn't think of something or uh, their check wasn't high enough to do something completely or some things like that. Like things that things that go wrong um, just kind of in the scope of planning versus a gotcha and so you know and by a gotcha i mean you know they they plan everything perfectly um they go to the they they go to the house that they're supposed to go to um and they 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 get to the safe and then oops the person that lives there comes home earlier than they ever do normally uh even after the characters have been scouting out uh their pattern for the last month you know that's a gotcha that's a that's a trap that the players can't avoid that the storyteller is doing to win, for lack of a better term. Environmental actions and legendary actions and lair actions, like so many other things that we've talked about, are salt. They're not the meal, they're the salt. And if you overdo the salt, then the meal gets spoiled. You know, and that's that's really um, so. As awesome as they are, <laughs> and as 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 much fun as as they are for storytellers to be able to to you know pull out this uh the you know the the earthquake in the volcano because they're foolish enough to go to the red dragon's volcano to attack them if there is a word of caution there it is d don't use them inappropriately right your your band of goblins are not going to have a legendary action just because you happen to be in a cave if it's a cave where you know if you're in a cave sure cave-ins happen but if every time the player turns around a cave-in happens and now they're locked in a room and oh there's a goblin hole up top and now the room is flooded with goblins and oh now it's an encounter like that's the kind of thing that's going to get really old for your players very very quickly if, if it happens once yeah absolutely if it happens five times your players are going to get bored with it what josh is basically saying is you have to vary your menu as a storyteller creating encounters. So let's say you have five or six adventures in your, maybe seven adventures in your tier one campaign. You're going to have lots of different things. You're probably not going to come across anything with legendary actions at a tier one campaign. However, you could and should have at least one or two encounters that have environmental actions. You should at least have one major end of tier one encounter with a big boss for that section of your campaign that has layer actions. You should have a big minion battle, maybe one or two times. And if you if you're doing this right, you notice I just mentioned about seven or eight separate encounters. I've utilized every one of our techniques, but not any of them used more than twice. Yep. And if you do that with your combat encounters, 
and you have a few, I was on the road, a planned random encounter happened because they were stuck in a spot too long, which is pretty flat, pretty basic, generally not designed to be hard or di- or or deadly. It's just there to get the story just something to moving. wake them up, yeah. To make and give them a quick win. Players need a quick win every now and then, right? They got to have a quick win so they feel like they're heroes. So throwing a met every now and then is not a bad idea either. But if you have spread out in a five level tiered campaign, whether you're using XP or Milestone, that number of combat encounters with that spread of very cool effects, you will have done amazingly well at designing your the combat encounters for your campaign right off the rip. I will add one other thing that's important to note, and that's this. Add stuff to your encounter. We discussed it in our episode with Danilo, and I'll reiterate that here. Don't have every encounter be a physical space that's a square box is 30 by 30 because that's easy. Have there be levels and layers. I one of my cool encounters that I am very most proud of is I had a standard dungeon crawl design, but I had one room that was basically the bottom of an examination room, like the old style 1800s uh, medical academy examination room. So there's a, a it almost looks like a theater kind of thing where up top up high there's a balcony. So I had seating in the balcony, but every five foot square was five foot higher and there's a staircase and the chairs. So everything was difficult terrain up there. And the party starts the, the, the encounter in the bottom part. They climb up to that level, which is a good 40 feet above. So no one's easily dropping below and then they're attacked. There's a <laughs> five foot exit one way, a five foot exit the other way. And then darkness and cloud spells are up there. And so the environment was treacherous. The party, who's fairly mobile, was hampered in by these tight environments. The balcony itself was 15 foot, lowest level to highest level, going up five feet each way. And there was only one hallway that went around or one walkway that went behind all the chairs and up another set of stairs and out one way and then one side door that's it and bad guys are coming in both ways that was a brilliant encounter it was very straightforward i didn't have a lot of minions in that there was one semi boss but it was designed to box them in and see how they dealt with the terrain so utilize your terrain and design encounters within terrain to make it interesting we have, uh, as we say, we have we have uh, taken the meat off the bone on this one. There's a lot of things to talk about with encounter building. I am sure that it will come up again uh, in subsequent episodes. Um, any last words that you've got for tonight? Yeah, so I just want to leave everyone, especially newer storytellers, um, uh, but also experienced storytellers with a refresher. I find watching and listening, watching videos and listening to podcasts that talk about these types of things, great refreshers. We all fall into habits and we miss some of these techniques. So to to kind of just uh, refresh, know the reason you're having the encounter in your campaign or in your adventure. Make it intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Make it intentional. Make it fit a plot reason. And that will help your players become more engaged. Um, Make sure you make the tempo match the reason 
so it fits uh, that encounter and therefore will fit within your story and campaign. Follow that up by selecting the villains, monsters, and NPCs that support that. Do your best. Utilize the tools. Utilize your resources. Go on Facebook. Talk to folks. By all means, ask us. Say, Absolutely. hey, this is the kind of party I've got. I'm going against this. I, I, I have an idea. Give us your plot reason for having it and let us talk to you about what what we think would work. And we're not saying we're perfect, but we're saying a couple more ideas in the pot can never hurt. Right. So get that pick the pick the creatures that fit and that will mechanically support what you're looking for. And finally, utilize creatures that have legendary actions. Utilize layer actions. And if you've got creatures that don't have them, just put in environmental actions. You are the storyteller. You are the creator of these bad guys. You are the creator of the encounter. Just because a stat block doesn't have layer actions doesn't mean you can't go through the book, pick one you like, and give it to a creature stat block that you like. And make it flow. Know your pace. Make it flow. That's what I. That's pretty much what I wanted to say. If you're doing those things, if this has refreshed your mind, you're going to have combat encounters that sing. And remember, as a storyteller, you can always change your mind. You are never wrapped into anything. Yep. If you feel like an encounter isn't going the way that you want it to, in either direction, make it harder, make it easier, make it faster, make it slower, vary the tempo, whatever you need to do. But you're you're in control of guiding that encounter through the story. Make sure that the story comes out the way that you want it to at the end. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening, and uh, we will see you next week. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our side quest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.